Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And my guest today is Daniel Firth Griffith, who is a storyteller, entrepreneur, and a lover of the Wildwoods. He is an undeserving father to three wonderful children and an unworthy husband to the best partner this world has to give. He is the lead fellow at Tim Shell Wildland, a 400-acre verified regenerative process-led and emergent conservation wildland in Virginia, the co-founder of the Robina Institute, the Mid-Atlantic Hub for the Savory Institute, and the founder of Commons Provisions, a local food hub serving the eastern region of the East, the United States that is scaling regeneration by keeping it small. Daniel is also the author of two books, the most recent of which is an Amazon bestseller and award-winning book. The book received a wide array of influential blurbs from Joel Salton calling it a regenerative movements devotional to Gabe Brown declaring it provides the words that so many in the regenerative movement are missing to Judith calling it a buoyant riff that gets to the heart of regenerative farming to Alan Savory calling Daniel the poet laureate of holistic management. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Michael, thanks for having me on. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure. I promise about one tenth of those things are actually true. The others <laughs> just uh, <laughs> make me look like I'm busy. Yeah, well, it does sound that way. So you are a very busy uh, man. How do you how do you stay up with everything? That's a really really good question. I, I think there's actually books written about this sort of lifestyle today. I've I've never read them. Um, maybe it just highlights the uh, the true validity of what they're trying to preach. Um, but it, it's section time. I've I've just found from an early age, um, really planning out your day. Um, purposefully, not legalistically or mathematically or even using really a schedule, but um, just finding true time to dedicate true attentive work to a subject. Uh, It's really unbelievable how much you can get done. I get up real early, read for a couple hours, the rest of the family gets up. Um, we, We do morning chores and spend time on the farm and just keep on, keep on, keeping on and, uh, so much good work to be done. And so maybe mm-hmm. that's, that's a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you get started in regenerative agriculture? Yeah, massive question, which I will breeze through for us. Uh, so I don't take the majority of this podcast towards my story. Um, but uh, as they say, a true long story short, I was a very active uh, child growing up, uh, really didn't have any health issues. Um you know, state wrestler in high school, uh, state champion wrestler in high school, and really good at football, pretty, uh, pretty widely um, awarded scholarships going to college to play uh, football, that is, and um, just just really active, really healthy. Um, and then out of nowhere, I was diagnosed with two pretty severe genetic diseases, uh, my senior year in high school, my mm-hmm. life pivoted, spent about two to three years, um, 
more or less a vegetable. I, I don't mean that mentally. I more mean that physically. Um, but I, I played football uh, going into what would have been uh, my, 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 you know, my senior year at about 235 pounds. Um, and by the end of that, that initial trial period of two to three years of struggling with this genetic disease, I weighed about 130, 135 pounds. Wow. Um, it didn't take me two or three years to get there. I actually got there in a couple of months, which is more scary than anything else I've, I've said. Um, but I stayed there and I, I couldn't get out of it. Anyways, continuing the long story in a short fashion, um, spent years in hospitals, went through a multiplicity of surgeries and tests and procedures. Um, I remember one time I was laying on a surgical table, fully awake. Uh, there's no other else, else to do it. And they were, I don't know, maybe 10 to 15 different doctors were all huddled over me doing this hour too long procedure, which was incredibly painful. Just bury the details. And uh, I remember this nurse took my hand and, you know, you're laying in an OR, an operational room. You're looking up at these white lights filled with all these people dressed and you can't tell if they're boys or girls, um, you know, men or female. And um, this one nurse who I never forgot had, um, I just, I never forget it. She, she, you know, me feeling so alone, she took my hand and, and she held it and she kind of squeezed it tighter than I think a nurse um, that was more of a participant in a situation, less of a member. Yeah. Uh, of a very pivotal situation in a human being's life. She took my hand and she kind of squeezed it. And I, and I remember um, just that, that, that moment of peace that, that came over me. And um, I don't know why I bring that up, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a moment in my life that I'll never forget. And, and uh, a moment of peace and happiness and a little bit of, of community and, and flavor and a very painful, painful moment and, and painful time in my life. Well, anyways, years went by, nothing got better. And, um, and I remember I was sitting in the backyard of my parents' patio. I was married at this point, or by this point, I should say, to my wonderful wife, Morgan. She was off working full-time. I was sitting on the back porch watching spring, or really winter, turn into to spring, reading a book. And it was actually Joel Salatin's Folks, This Ain't Normal. I was mm -hmm. uh, in college to be a software developer. Um, nowhere did I think my life was going towards uh, farming. I, I could barely stand, let alone farm, so might as well be sitting behind a computer and uh, a good friend of mine who owns a 200 head uh, marvelous regenerative farm up in Northeast Ohio uh, had given me this book, gifted it to me ironically and said, Daniel, I think you might really like this. And uh, <laughs> if he only knew now almost a decade later um, what that book really meant to me, but I was reading Joe Salatin's folks that say normal. And my mom walked out of the back, back door and she looked at me and I'll never forget this moment just like the uh, nurse holding my hand in the OR. Uh, it was a moment I will never forget. And she looked at me with a little tear in her eye and a smirk on her face, a little bit of you know pain and joy, joy and pain mixed together. She said, Daniel, we, we've tried everything. And I'm skipping over a lot of details because boy, had we tried everything. We traveled mm -hmm. all around the country doing unbelievably intensive and invasive um, procedures from Eastern medicine, Western medicine, acupuncture to surgery, didn't matter. We had tried everything, she said, but we haven't tried chickens and she paused and I'll let that just kind of pause. And she, it, as she did, and I kind of giggled and I just kept reading and she goes, no, Daniel, I'm not, I'm not joking. I, we haven't tried diet. You know, we've, we've mm. been so active in, in, in trying to find health, but we're sitting on 30 acres in Northeast Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. Why don't we raise some chickens? Mm. Well, 
what if that helps? And, and I don't think she really actually believed that chickens were the solve to a half a decade long um, genetic disease that was truly driving my life to its end. Um, but as funny as it is, it was, we, we started, we bought a hundred black australorp chickens from Murray, Murray Hatchery that day. I didn't even ask my wife. It's still a joke between her and I, mm-hmm. who are now full-time farmers, um, farming 400 acres, uh, which I guess we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but we bought hundred black australorp chickens from Murray McMurray Hatchery. They came the next week. We knew nothing of raising chickens. We knew nothing of chicken tractors or the idea of pastured poultry. Joel Salatin was a book, a uh, name on a book that somebody had given me uh, out of the blue, not somebody who had become a mentor in my life. Um, and it emerged from there. I started working on a local cattle farm, the same uh, place that uh, the gentleman who owns it gave me the book, fell in love with cattle, um, experimented with some market gardening and found out I am not a gardener. I can't stand gardening. I have okay. unbelievable respect for people who can actually nurture a market garden. Uh, I think it's much harder than animal agriculture. And I was very much more attuned and, and interested in animal agriculture. And so we went the cattle route, fell in love with cattle. And now a decade later, we run a 400 acre wildland here in central Virginia, my wife and I, and health more or less has returned. I'm fully capable of running a 400 acre farm. I'm mm-hmm. 185 pounds, uh, have some physical limitations uh, to my life uh, still, uh, but there are hurdles in the road, really bumps in the road, I should say, um, not hurdles on the track, if you will. Mm. Short, short story. Wow, that is so powerful. And so was there very specific things you changed in your diet or is just more going to like a whole food diet? <laughs> That's the question. Um, I, I purposely stayed away from it. Um, this, this answer because, uh, not because I don't want to answer it, uh, just because it gets a little bit complex. So if you ask it, I'll tell you. Um, in college, I was, I majored in, in, you know, software development, computer science and mathematics. That's kind of the way my mind is built. Although the book I wrote last year is more or less a book on poetry as mm-hmm. Alan Sait called me the poet laureate, but, uh, I kind of live two different lives there, but in college, I, I, I was a little bit more mathematically oriented. And this, this trial in my life happened around college. And so I thought, what if I could build a software application uh, in Excel? So something that's very accessible, mm-hmm. you know, Microsoft Excel. What if I could build a software application that could help me understand what I'm, from a nutritional perspective, struggling with? Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe we can call it allergies or intolerances, for lack of a better word. And so what I did for two years, I journaled how I felt emotionally, physically, and spiritually before a meal a little bit during the meal, and then 30 minutes post every meal. Then alongside that journal, I would also dictate or elucidate the ingredients of that meal. So not ketchup, but Mm -hmm. organic cane sugar and organic heirloom potato or tomatoes or white vinegar or apple cider vinegar or raw apple cider vinegar or raw unfiltered organic apple cider vinegar, but really to be as precise as possible to control as many variables as I could. And then after two years of doing that, I built a software application that basically took all of that data, all of the collected variables and spat out a raw ingredients list that universally across a wide landscape, two years of intensive journaling and testing, the foods that I could eat without having negative ramifications. Um, Because up to that point, I had done years of food intolerance studies and stool sampling and, and, and allergy tests, and I'm not intolerant or allergic to anything. But I could tell you that when I ate particular foods, my life would end. I mean, two or three weeks in bed, um, mm. losing hundreds of pounds legitimately, just 
my life was in a period of um, how fast can I gain back a hundred pounds? So just next week I could lose it again. But because if I lost too much without gaining anything back, the doctors were going to take over my life. And I was back in the hospital. Mm. Um, well, anyways, I did, and it spat out 21 different food items. And legitimately for the last 10 years, I've not strayed from that list of 21 different food items. Every meal that I've ever consumed has been cooked inside of our house prepared in our house. We have a big freeze dryer, which I use when I travel because I travel quite often. So we make mm -hmm. all my meals, we freeze dry them. Uh, and then I bring them with me. And, uh, and every now and again, we'll try a new food. Typically it fails and I get very sick. Uh, so we don't try it that often, but as long as I stick to that list. Um, and then obviously lifestyle and the quality of those foods matter. Like a non-organic russet potato is not the same thing as a on-farm grown certified organic russet potato. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's variation, um, but that, that's a high level of it. Wow. That is a, that is in, intense devotion. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your current farm. Cause I want to, I want to understand kind of like the, the 400 acres and the rewilding of it. Talk a little bit through that. Yeah. It, it, I, I have the blessing of coming into agriculture from basically any field other than agriculture. Um, I have no siblings, uh, grandparents, fathers, uncles, aunts, cousins, great grandfather. I mean, I, I have no farming in my lineage. And, and so I have no baseline in which I come at it. I come from a very clean paradigm, if you will. Um, really, if I come at it with uh, via a paradigm at all, I come at it from a survival paradigm. How mm. can I not die today? Um, and so I come at it very differently than most, which I realize. But about a year into running our own operation, we found uh, that we really had no interest in this modern understanding of farming. Um, you know, for instance, we were running cattle and we had our cow herd. So our breedable aged mama cows, they were in a herd. And, you know, as soon as, you know, they were open, so unbred. And then we had the yearling heifer herd. Because people told us, you know, you can't breed your heifers too early. So when you put the bull in with the cows to breed them, there also can't be yearling heifers there. Uh, but invariably, we have a bull herd now, right? So now we have a mm -hmm. bull herd and we had some steers because you got to castrate them. How, how dare you not? So you castrate them. And now who you put the steers with? Maybe you put the steers with the open cows, maybe the steer or the heifers, maybe the bulls, maybe you run them in their own herd because you're finishing them and they have to have good grass because for some reason, only steers that are being finished and sold need good grass. And so we were running multiple, multiple herds. And uh, the book I wrote actually, Wild Like Flowers, um, that you prefaced uh, so well in your, in your intro, uh, is actually written uh, as a book of short stories coming off of the wildland. And this is one of them. I'll, I'll ruin it for everybody. Um, there was a moment with our bull um, where he challenged us. And it was this weirdly emotional emotional moment in our, in our agricultural life. Typically, when your bull is challenging you, and trying to kill you in, in some testosterone-filled uh, moments, uh, you're not yeah. thinking it's, 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 it's a pleasurable experience. Well, anyways, we left that unpleasurable experience with a lot of questions. And, and one of the questions was, in this regenerative agricultural movement, uh, which is built out of this idea of the predator-prey connection that predators in nature and natural systems historically over the many thousands of years have pushed prey animals, prey species that are herbivores, cattle, one of them, sheep, goats, gazelle, pronghorns, antelope, elk, deer, moose, whatever, bison, of course, 
prey species naturally in nature forward and in tight bunches. This is what rotational grazing, adaptive grazing, holistic plant mm -hmm. grazing, mm -hmm. these are all of these systems These are based upon this predator-prey connection. Well, this predator-prey connection, which is what is building this regenerative movement, is itself undergird with this understanding of animal impact, that all of these things, they, they come together um, where you have animals in pastures, um, tightly bunched, um, somehow this relationship between the tight bunching of a herd, the soil surface and the soil and its microbiota itself actually have a symbiotic relationship. This is what any farmer in the regenerative movement, we understand this. This is uh, animal impact. This is trampling. This is grazing. This is uniform grazing. This is all of these things. But it's interesting. We call it herd effect. Everything that I've just said could be summarized more simply as regenerative agriculture is about herd effect. A uh -huh. herd invariably affecting, naturally, naturally affecting, that is, its surroundings. Well, the issue is in the natural world, I mean, I'm willing to go on a little bit of a time travel with you. My first book, by the way, is Boone, an Unfinished Portrait. It's a historically acclaimed. It's not entirely readable for the you know, average person who wants a storybook, but it's a historically acclaimed book of the early American West. And so when I'm speaking here, I'm, I'm speaking from a little bit of a published historical background. Um, you and I, if we were to go back to the early 1400s, early 1500s, and we were to cross the Appalachian Plateaus, go into the Cumberland region and, and look at this tall grass prairie or the budding entry into the tall grass prairie, um, that is, you know, the, this bluegrass prairie that, that Kentucky and even your region of Ohio, Southwest Ohio is, is, is uh, founded upon. We would not have seen indigenous peoples standing in a massive bison herd being like, oh, shoot, that's a, that's a, yearling, that's a yearling heifer of a bison. We got to get that out of here. The bull is going to breed it too early. And oh, my gosh, look at this. That's an open cow right there. We can have an open cow. Hey, hey, Mr. Bull, come over here and breed this open cow. Oh, my God, there's a bull. Bulls can't be in this herd. We, what's gonna, I mean, what's going to happen? They might, they might actually calf with the hmm. seasons of, of the natural world. You know, we have to be able to control it. I, I don't think this ever happened, hmm. right? And so, yes, we live in a modern world. Yes, we live in a world that has fence lines. Yes, I have neighbors that don't like my cows over there. So we live in a very denuded world, a reduced form of the natural world. I understand this, but what if, what if there was another option? I, I think this is the, re, the role of the rewilding movement. Without understanding it had a name, we jumped headlong into it. And we thought, what if we ran one herd? Mm. What if we ran one herd that invariably affected its surroundings because it was a herd? Or maybe a better question, when you have a yearling heifer herd, an open cow herd, a steer herd, and a bull herd, or whatever you want to call it, is that four herds? Or is it one herd that's been broken apart? And if it's mm. one herd that's been broken apart, what is missing? As a human being that is not a herding you know, prey species, definitely not bovines, and we definitely don't have cloven hooves, and we definitely don't have four legs, it's very hard for us to answer this question. And so as long as I can't answer this question, how can I control the resultant and how can I manage the process? It's very hard. It's very hard. And so because we couldn't find those answers because we are not bovine, we thought to ourselves, wow, what if our bovine could answer those questions? What if the bovine were the only animals that could answer mm. those questions? So anyways, all of that aside, um, Tim Wildland, we're a 400-acre uh, rewilding landscape. We can call it that. We call it process-led in the sense um, that we're looking at process. I'm not really looking at fat cows. I don't really care if my cows are fat or skinny. 
I care about the process that creates fat cows. Invariably, we will come to fat cows if the system is healthy and happy. And if their cows are affecting its, its surroundings as one herd, maybe we will get there. Well, anyways, we run one herd. It uh, doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, if we're running sheep, it's one flock. If we're running a sounder of pigs, it's one sounder of pigs. You know, the boars in there, the yearling gilts, whatever you want to call them, are in there. The sows are in there. The babies are in there. Hmm. And in uh, our herd of cattle are the same way. We don't castrate, separate, or wean any of our animals. And, uh, and so it's one herd that invariably affects its surroundings. Again, my book, Wildlife Flowers, goes into all the particulars and has some really interesting stories. Um, but to be clear, um, because I focus a lot on what we don't do, we don't castrate, separate, or wean mm. and, and all that stuff. What we do do, um, it, it's all about language. I think language is the foundation of community and community and collaboration, I think, is the foundation of, of what regeneration or regenerative agriculture is really getting to. And when you look at the language, you know, farmers are cultivators. I think everybody that listens to this podcast as a farmer, and definitely yourself. Well, yeah, we, I've, I've said a farmer is a cultivator. You read books. Farmers are cultivators. Cultivators are farmers. We're cultivators of the earth. Mm -hmm. We've heard this a plethora of times. The Latin root of cultivation is a word called cultivo. And it's interesting because cultivo literally um, defined is to till, it's a verb, to till, to toil, or to turn over. Mm. This very apt definition of the kind of agriculture that most regenerative agriculturalists are not fans of. I mean, we have the no-till movement. Um, I don't really like the idea of toiling. I think farming is hard, hard enough. I don't, I, don't, I don't really want to toil. Um, but it's interesting if we go one step further and we forsake our Latin roots for just a moment, we go to the original Greek and Koine Greek, the root, the cognate of the Latin word cultivo, which is the root of our modern word cultivation is not cultivo. And it doesn't mean to till the toilet or, or to uh, turn over. It means to be or to become. It's a word called palo. To be or to become. And so if anything, Tim Shaw Wildland, our rewilding project, if you will, is in many ways an attempt to reposition our uh, human species, not above the natural world, but a member of it. Mm. So we don't have this idea of human and natural. We have this idea of the thing in which natural and humanity are the same word. Perhaps, and I say it's a project because it's a perhaps, it's a question. Can this work in our modern environment with fence lines and neighbors and polluted air and polluted, polluted waters and everything else. Um, but it's a search for Palo. It's a search of being. What if being and community and relationship is the foundation of regenerative agriculture? Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about community because I think that is such a key for farmers um, to be working together, to share equipment, to share knowledge. Uh, what can you share about that? Yeah. Yeah. So on our Instagram profile, it says we wear many hats and this is a, a good time for me to take off the one and put on the other. My wife and I, as you said, in intro, we, we run this organization. It's an institute called the Rabinia Institute. And um, our, our mission is to advocate, demonstrate and educate the supreme abundance of holistically managed and wild living systems. Basically, we, we manage lands, we design lands and we educate land designers and managers. 
So we, we teach holistic management, we teach ecological outcome verification, we do ecological outcome verification, which is a verified regenerative uh, land monitoring protocol of the Savory Institute. We are ourselves a Savory hub, a hub of the Savory Institute here in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, but in that work, um, we discovered something that we believe to be both the secret sauce of, uh, if I can call it that, of a, a more beautiful future, a more beautiful world, perhaps mm -hmm. of co-creating a more beautiful world, um, but also something that's entirely missing, we felt in our region. Um, and, and that's this idea of collaboration and community. We were on a phone call, uh, a lot of our land transition and land design consulting services we do in conjunction with land uh, or regenerative finance organizations. So for instance, you know, grandfather passes the land, let's say a thousand acres of corn, soy, and wheat is, wheat is uh, bequeathed to, you know, a 25 year old um, next generation granddaughter, grandson who's interested in, in, in changing the paradigm. And uh, she calls us or he calls us and they say, hey, listen, we want to transition corn, soy, and wheat, thousand acres over to a perennial uh, stand of, of, of grassland with cows and everything else. But I don't know how to do this. How do we do this? Mm -hmm. so they bring mm -hmm. us on. We bring in land transition uh, services and land design services and mentorship and education, everything else. But it's very expensive work. It's very large work. And so we have a lot of financial partners that come in and assist it, you know, with zero percent interest loans and a lot of other amazing things. But we were on one of these calls. That is to say, we were on one of these calls and, uh, and it was a granddaughter in this instance. And we were on Zoom and it was a massive project, hundreds of thousands of dollars and uh, maybe just over a hundred thousand really. And, uh, and the granddaughter looked at us and the financial institution giving the loan, by the way. And she said, this is great, but right now we live in a commodity market where all we have to do is, is borrow the money to, in, to buy the seeds, plant the seeds, and then harvest the seeds. And it's all paid for, the insurance is there, but the market is there. If we transition to a thousand acres of perennial and beautiful grasses with cattle mm -hmm. and sheep and everything else, we lose the market. And so this is only a partial solution. And they, they hung up on the phone and we went our ways and they ended up not going forward with it. I, to this day, I don't know what they did. Mm. Um, but it was a moment of sincere reflection both for both our team, but also for this financial partner of ours where we realized it is one thing to regenerate. However, it is one thing entirely separate and entirely more potent to regenerate the soul of our community so that we can then heal the soil. And what I mean by that is it's, if we can start with collaboration and community, maybe regenerative projects or projects that are built off of the principles and practices of regenerative agriculture may be more successful because the desires of a granddaughter to transition a thousand acres of corn, soy, and wheat do not equate the reality of actually transitioning. And, and, and the, the multitude of interconnected relationships that that requires to transition, including market. So at that point, we decided we're gonna spend a year, uh, the uh, executive director of this financial, regenerative financial institution and myself every Friday for two hours from three o'clock to five o'clock, we were gonna meet over the phone and just brainstorm, right? What, what do farmers really need? If, if it's financing and design and mentorship, that's, that's important, but what else do they need? And uh, we built uh, a year uh, later what's called the Commonwealth Network. It's a network of verified, regenerative, human-scale farms uh, from the Mid-Atlantic that gather in the name of both social reciprocity, which I can get into a little bit, uh, but also uh, holistic opportunity. 
And so there's a lot of terms that are throughout. Let me just walk through them really quick. Verified regenerative. What does this mean? A lot of farmers, as you know, struggle to form collaboratives or community organizations because we all do things differently. I raise heritage cows. You might raise Angus. That's fine. But we're never going to agree which cow is better. I might use poly wire. You use poly braid. We're never going to agree which is better. I use single strand wire. You use double strand wire. I move them once a day. You move them five times a day. Doesn't matter, right? And I'm sure you see this in the in in the uh, the veg space as well. Practice is very hard for us to agree on. Results, outcomes is very easy. Mm, absolutely, scientifically are verified regenerative. If every year you are building soil, increasing biodiversity, increasing the water holding capacity of the soil, including the infiltration rate of that soil, and all of the other resultants that come with those basic changes. And I'm doing the same thing. Who cares if I'm raising smaller cattle than you? Who cares if I'm raising, you know, F1 varieties of vegetables or heirloom varieties of vegetables? If, if we're verifiably regenerative, we can gather. And so mm. the first stage of our community, uh, the Commonwealth Network, that is, is this understanding of verified regenerative. And so we utilize what's called ecological outcome verification. It's a landscape monitoring protocol built uh, really by the Savory Institute uh, in conjunction with the tens of scientists from across the world uh, to determine what is verified regenerative, what is an outcome-based monitoring protocol, not a certified or practice-based certified program. So like certified organic, we're looking at don't spray glyphosate, right? Whereas in EOV, ecological outcome verification, this verified regenerative idea looking at outcomes I don't really care if you spray glyphosate because if I'm managing, if I'm monitoring, excuse me, the outcome of your land base, the land will tell me if you're spraying glyphosate. And if you're spraying glyphosate, you're not going to be regenerative. So we're looking at outcomes, not practices. And so we utilize EOV uh, as the entrance into this, this Commonwealth network. The other term that I want to define is human scale. At first, I used to say family farms, and I realized there's a lot of people doing really good work that aren't genetically related to each other. Uh, and I think human scale is, is a much more abundant, uh, much more proper way of understanding this idea of the ideal family farm. That is a farm where you go there, it's peaceful. They're not pushing for production, they're pushing for relationship and peace. And they harvest, yeah, that's fine. But it's not a mechanized system. The idea of a family farm is the idea of a human scale farm, which is the idea of a lack, not of infrastructure or technology, just a lack of mechanization, which is a paradigm not a technological reality. And so we have a, a community of verified regenerative and human scale farmers. What they have access to, because I said they had access to social, you know, they gather in the name of social reciprocity and holistic opportunity um, is, is a multitude. I'll quickly walk through them and you can take this and dive into it or just pass it right over and talk about other things. Uh, but they have five different opportunities in this, in this network. The first of which is, is financing. Um, We've created a streamlined approach to regenerative financing where all the Commonwealth farms, um, basically between reaching out for money and, and receiving it, have the ability to get it within 72 hours up to a quarter of a million dollars at very low to no interest. So that um, not only do they want to regenerate, not only are we verifying their, op their operation as regenerative, but they actually have the financial means necessary to do what they need to do. Because as you very well know, no local smallholder or human scale regenerative farmer can go to the bank and borrow $50,000 to buy a herd of cattle. It's very, very difficult. And if you can do it, you are the anomaly. And so we wanted to provide a financial opportunity for our farms, a second of which is mentorship. 
Um, this, I think, is very clear to you and, and, and your listener base. Um, we don't know everything. Going back to what I said about the cattle, who is the best cow? It's the cow, but sometimes we don't know and sometimes we need human mentorship. So we uh -huh. provide mentorship and consulting and uh, educational services at either low or no cost to all of our farmers so that not only are we equipping them financially to regenerate, but we're also helping them mentally, psychologically perhaps, you know, mm -hmm. sustain that regeneration. Well, anyways, through and through, there's a lot of different opportunities uh, that surround such things, land design. Uh, we have this really cool calf donation system. Um, last year, we donated about 150 cows to farmers. And uh, it's as simple as, as it sounds. We take cows and we donate them to farmers that need them, um, which is really, really freaking cool. Um, we take them from dairies, uh, grass-fed regenerative dairies on the East Coast that would rather donate the cows to us than sell them off to feedlots and central animal, uh, centralized animal feeding operations. And we take them, we acclimate them to really good management, single wire, poly wire, acclimate them to good grass, and then we donate them back to the community of farmers in the Commonwealth Network. And, you know, here's 30 cows. Mm -hmm. Go solve our future. I mean, it's a cool, cool thing. Well, the last thing that, that we do is we aggregate. We provide a market, going back to the original foundation of, 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 of why we do what we do, that conversation that I alluded to earlier. Um, and so we build an organization, it's a sister organization to both Rabinia as an institute and the Commonwealth Network, which is Commons Provisions, uh, which aggregates online the totality of these uh, 40 farms is uh, provisions from vinegars that they make. Uh, to oils and leathers, uh, to meats. Um, we sell grass-fed and finished bison and lamb and goat and beef and certified organic non-GMO soy-free and corn-free heritage pork and chicken among eggs and other wonderful value-added products. Um, but the whole system is built on two things that are really interesting that I just want to highlight. Um, the first of which is 84% of every dollar that Commons Provisions makes goes directly back to the farmer. So to have a quick moment of comparison, if you walk into Whole Foods and you buy a pack of 100% grass-fed and finished ground beef, about 14 cents of every dollar goes back to the original farmer. If you're on the East Coast and you go to Whole Foods and you do that, I actually know the farmer that's sourcing it. And I can even verify that number for you. He makes about 14 cents on the dollar. Wow. If you go online and you do the food delivered service like ButcherBox or something else, that number is about 24 to 34 cents on the dollar. Uh, and most of that food actually comes from New Zealand or massive scale American ranches, hundreds of thousands of acres, which have a place. Uh, the issue is in the eastern coast United States, they don't. Um, and so you're going to have to import them over the Mississippi, which is problematic from an economic perspective, but also from a social perspective. Why transport meat when the local farmers raising it are going bankrupt? In 2021, mm -hmm. the state of Virginia, we lost 801 farmers totally bankrupt, went out of business, will never open their doors again, 801 in one calendar year alone. So we have a problem. The problem isn't food access. The problem is the people raising the food can't get it to you for some reason, or at least it's hard to get it to you. And there's a lot of solutions. We're only obviously trying to solve for one of the solutions, farmer's markets, direct to consumer, between the farm, right, farming table sort of things. These are all unbelievable opportunities for farmers and consumers. 
But anyways, 84 cents on the dollar, not 24 to 34 or 14 at Whole Foods goes back to the farmer. And the other one, it's built in a local and decentralized model. So as we scale, we actually get bigger. The mantra, the mission statement of Commons Provisions is scaling regeneration by keeping it small. The idea is um, we have enough food being produced to feed people. Um, mm -hmm. Commercially, by the way, I hate to keep throwing numbers out because they're a little bit dull, I think, but 47% of every item, every morsel of food produced in the United States this year will rot in the distribution system, 47%. We have a distribution problem. We don't have a production problem. And so our, our entire organization is built locally. When you place an order with commons, it's right now about 100 miles. The idea is 30, but your food doesn't travel more than 100 miles total between the farmer, the centralized warehouse or, or internet fulfillment center, if you, if you will, all the way to your door, 100 miles total. So it's local food from local verified regenerative human scale farmers for local families, for local bellies, for local nourishment, for the local sus sustainment, if you will, of our social, economic, and very physical reality from climate change to monetary inflation. It's uh, the idea is local and mm -hmm. decentralized approaches. Hey, thriving farmers, do you need a quick win on your farm? Have you struggled to find the right soil amendments that maximize your fruit or vegetable production? In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow and their prebiotic formulas. I was skeptical at first, but this past season, I boosted my strawberry yields by 18% with an AgriGrow product called Ultra. What does an 18% yield increase look like in dollars? My $6 in product investment returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries on just three rows. This is the kind of ROI that we need as small-scale producers. Ultra is an OMRI-listed soil prebiotic technology that has been proven to increase yields and develop soils. To find out more or to order, go to smallfarm.solutions. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all Thriving Farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for 10% off discount on your first order. So that's very cool that you're, you're, you got, you're giving, I think you said 84 cents back. So how does the, how do you manage the, um, the operation so that you survive as an operation on 16%? Um, is it more like members are doing some work or is it just that you've chosen to not really focus on taking up a, a massive profit as these other companies are? That's a really good question. It, it's multifold. It's very expensive. Um, it's very expensive to run an online meat company where you take everybody's meat, you send mm -hmm. it to a co-packer, the co-packer defrosts it, pulls it out of all these packaging, and then repackages it into your packaging. Mm -hmm. Very expensive. We don't do that. All of the meat that we purchase from farmers, uh, which by the way, is how we do it. We purchase whole animals from farmers who buy the entire thing and it has na their name on it because they brought it to the processor and uh, we keep it in this packaging. We keep their name on it. So we don't rebrand anything. We save a lot of costs there. Um, but that's, by the way, also one of our value propositions. When, when our customers eat beef, like if you go on the site right now and you place an order, you're going to get a box delivered to your front door. And right now you're either going to get a box that says Verdant Acres beef, Three Springs farm beef, mm. or Triple E farms beef. That's just the beef. I know that's in our freezer. We'll have different beef next week. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. always, it's always changing, but you're going to open the box and you're going to see their name, not ours. Our name doesn't matter. Our name is built not to matter. We are the facilitator of local regeneration. The farmers are the 
the, the, the local regenerators. And so not only are we saving costs, but we're keeping our operation transparent, but farmer first. Uh, that's, that's very key. And another key is local distribution. The reason um, that other organizations have to charge so much, like if you go on one of our competitors' websites, who I won't say the name because it doesn't matter, um, you put $100 of meat in your cart, they, uh, they'll ship it to your door for free. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're incurring a $60 to $100 cost mm, to uh -huh, do that to you. Uh -huh. If an organization makes $100 and loses $60 in the process of just shipping, how much money do they need to make on the actual product? Now we're getting down to 14 cents on the dollar, mm. right? And so when we build these local decentralized nodal, meaning hub-based systems where food doesn't travel more than 100 miles, I don't need FedEx. Mm. I mean, yes, Commons provisions, you go on the site very soon, we're going to start shipping meats, but you're going to pay for it. And the only reason we're doing that uh, is our producer base right now is so spread out, we simply can't build internet fulfillment centers, decentralized distribution hubs uh, fast enough. We, we physically do the infrastructure shortages. Like if we go online to buy a, you know, a 40 foot by 40 foot walk-in freezer to plant in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, because there's a concentration of Commonwealth Network farms there. Um, it's not coming in a year and a half from now, right? And mm -hmm. so uh, in order to solve Charlotte, North Carolina's food access issue, because we have farms in Charlotte, North Carolina, we're shipping to, North, to, to Charlotte, but the people are paying for it. Um, we're not offering free shipping. I'm happy to offer free shipping. Mm -hmm. But our farmers wouldn't be paid. And then our mission crumbles. There, I could probably talk for another 30 minutes on, on the differences uh, in systems approach. In, in my opinion, and, and, and I won't, but I'll conclude with this. In my opinion, we, 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 we simply can't take the commercial distribution model and slap the word regenerative on it. It doesn't work. We have to create, really, we have to co-create an entirely new system. A new system with new rules, new organizations, new paradigms, new paradigms that maybe in order for this to work, farmers actually have to be paid, not a livable wage. No, that's laughable. The average farmer in the state of Virginia last year made $20,000. That's below the poverty line. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just let that yeah. sink in for a second. We didn't just lose 181 or 801 farmers. Our, our farmers on average are below the poverty line. And well, most of them have three kids or more. Most of the farmers I know in our area work another job. I mean, yes. there's a great farmer. I, I, he's a great guy, but he works like I, I popped over across the street to the um, machine shop. And he's like, yeah, I'm working till 10. I'm going to go back home and start seeding my corn at 10 a.m. He farms, you know, hundreds of acres and he is, it's very part-time. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Historically speaking, if I can slap the fourth or fifth hat on this, on this interview on my head real quick, um, Farmers have always had part-time jobs. Never in the history of humanity has a farmer ever really been a overly full-time job. Farmers are always been lawyers or pastors or something mm -hmm. else. Um, the issue is, the issue is uh, life has never been what it is today. Inflation has never been, in, in, in some sense, in a modern sense, what it, what it is today. It's, it's an entirely different system we live in. It's... Um, for instance, a farmer who farmed just on the outside of one small town in Virginia 400 years ago, maybe said say 200 years ago, or in Europe somewhere 500 years ago, had a local town that he just peddled his stuff at, mm. right? He fed his community. And if he ever had excess and there was a world trade or a global trade avenue that he could export his products into, he did. But it was very easy. You grew produce, you brought it down to the town center and everybody ate it. 
That's what everybody survived on. We don't have a town center anymore. And notice the name of commons provisions. What is another name for a town center? It's mm -hmm. the town commons. That's, mm -hmm. that's exactly what commons is built off of. What if, what if we reinvigorate this idea of the township? What if we reinvigorate this idea of local food being consumed locally so that money doesn't even just stay local, but nourishment stays local? That, that, my friend, is health. It's interesting, staying a little bit historical, Alexis de Tocqueville was a, uh, a Frenchman who came over in the 1830s and 40s to write a book on what, what makes America different. It's called Democracy in America. It's a great read for anybody who's interested in such a subject. He, he says many things, but one of the things that he, that he focuses on for hundreds of pages is this idea of the township. He writes, America's political system is only really unique because it focuses on the township. It's built in the souls and hearts of the people and it's built in a local sense, the township. And, and I think uh, from an American political perspective, and I think from a very mainstream human species perspective, we, we have to reinvigorate the township um, in order to regenerate our world. In addition to that, we have to do it in such a way that farmers don't do more work. And so that's why we buy whole animals, we buy it outrightly from the farms and then we resell it. We don't ask them to work. We don't ask them to facilitate an online farmer's market. We want, don't want them doing more work. If they mm -hmm. want to go to a farmer's market, go to a farmer's market. It's amazing. We're trying to co-create a reality where they don't have to. They get to go to a farmer's market. Mm. Yeah, that's important. We were a part of a program. Um, I'll leave it nameless. I probably will have a post about it at a later point, but there was an online farmer's market program. And um, they ended up canceling delivery due to weather. And I had reached out multiple times before the storm because I saw the storm coming with the, I said, you know, we've got the storm coming, we really should cancel. And they refused to cancel. And so we prepared all the orders and stuff. And then they canceled the, the delivery literally after we had everything prepped. And I reached out to them and said, are you going to re, are you going to re, you know, are you going to uh, give us money back for this? And literally corp the corporate, uh, there was nothing, none of them reached out. And you know, about two months later, they reached out about something else. And I like sent them back an email. I was like, um, you still haven't addressed this. And they're like, well, you know, I'll have my colleague who's in the department address that and never heard back from them. Yeah. So I just, we completely severed ties. And um, yeah, I'm about, I, I think I will pull something together because unfortunately we did have the person on the, our podcast and we kind of gave them, you know, the podium. And we basically said, oh, it's great. You know, it's great for farmers. But in all reality, they're all about their bottom line. They're no longer about the local farmer. Um, and unfortunately it shows. And that's really unfortunate when you hear the, your perspective of, okay, how can we make it easier for the farmer instead of, you know, how can we screw the local farmer over and again, focus on just the corporate aspects of, you know, doing what we're doing. Yeah, abs ab absolutely. I couldn't, I, I simply couldn't agree with you more. Um, we, we are very firm. We, we have our uh, farms bring the, the live animal to a processor and they never see it again. They get a check and that's, that's, that's all it is. We ask them to help us market. We ask them if they want to share our posts on Instagram, please share it. Um, but I, I, I really just want them to go home and farm because if mm -hmm. regenerative agriculture <laughs> is going to succeed, and if, you know, human-induced climate change and social degeneration and food access and food deserts, if all of these things actually matter, we need farmers farming. Mm -hmm. We need farmers farming. And with all due respect, and I say this as a farmer myself, and, and I know you're a farmer, we, we already as farmers have too much risk. I don't need more risk. Yeah. 
I don't need more risk. Um, we don't buy on consignment, right? It's, it's our organization commons provisions will happily shield our farmers from a little bit of risk. We buy the meat outright. We buy the whole freaking thing. Mm-hmm. The hide, the bones, all so, of the cuts that don't sell. And right? what do That's you do with those? Do you t- take the hide and turn it into leather or are you just having to eat that, some of that cost? Are you trying to u- use all these things in very innovative ways? So, um, yeah, so we, we turn it into leather. Um, a, a, lot of, a lot of our programs are budding because what I mean by budding is emerging. They're just starting to peek their little heads out of the ground uh, mm-hmm. because we work with such a multiplicity of farmers. I mean, there's 40 farmers in this network and mm-hmm. we just submitted a $96 million grant proposal to the USDA to explode this along with other projects. Wow. Uh, yeah. We're not getting all 96 million, but the whole proposal was 96 million. Mm-hmm. And we, we're trying to bring on another 50 or so um, farmers within the next calendar year. So this is not just you know a, a note for the consumer, but I mean, we're trying to onboard many more farms, but all of these farms come with different animals, right? Some raise Jersey, some raise Angus. Anybody Mm -hmm. who raises a Jersey or an Angus understands those are two entirely different things. Very different. Yeah. Both cows, but they're not both cows. Um, And they also work with different processors, right? Some processors do this, some processors do that. Um, And so we're trying to find a a rhythm in between, Uh, but we have tanned hides We've done value-added uh, dog food type products or dog chew type products mm-hmm, with some mm-hmm. of the hides. We just partnered a couple of weeks ago with a uh, chemical-free pottery. Pottery, potter, I don't, I don't know. They actually, they take the bones and they turn it into bone ash. And they take the bone ash and they form cups and mugs and plates and, and servingware out of the bone. Oh, very not, cool. Not chemically infused glazes and other things. So it's you know, this is, this is a bone mug, if you will. Like it's, it's really super, super. These are all local producers. See that that's the other thing, what you have to realize is we're really interested in the value add. We're really interested in whole animal utilization, but I'm not interested in buying meat locally, selling meat locally, sending the hide across the country to an organic tannery. Right. And then having them send it back. I'm really glad that organic tannery exists in Vermont or California, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't exist where our farmers are. Right. And so there's trade offs. If we're shipping product all over the country in order to value add that product, how much carbon are we emitting? Mm-hmm. How much product are we losing? How much money are we taking out of the local economy in order to do that? They're, these are all trade offs. And, and we have to find, or at least I have to try to find local artisans, if you will, from potters to organic tanners um, to do local work. Mm-hmm. And so it's yeah. slow. It's we slow. have to build this this network, and unfortunately, a lot of it's bringing back the artisanal trades, which have been so lost because it's all turned into um, these massive production facilities. Like one of the things we're interested in is starting to produce rootstocks um, for some of these older varieties. And where do you even find information about that? It's it's <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, like you can start diving down the the rabbit hole, and eventually you get there. But this stuff just isn't out there. It's challenging. Um, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not as a not only out there, um, but it's it's the whole that you know in holistic management, you know at the Rabini Institute here we we teach holistic management at at Timshaw Wildland we practice you know what is holistic management holistic planning grazing holistic decision making and, and the like, um, but the foundation of of holistic management the foundation of managing any complex system very holistically, is, is this understanding which is not surprising, but it's only the whole matters. 
And if you manage mm -hmm. according to any other paradigm, it will fail, or at least it'll produce a different result. Um, you know, it's like an engine of a car. I hate to reduce holistic management down to that, but just really quick, I think it's understandable. In an engine of a car, you need fuel. So let's say you go to the gas pump, you pump in some, you know, whatever, 87 unleaded gasoline, but you forget to put oil into the engine. Yep. Will the engine run? No, no. So if you manage according to any other thing, but the totality of the car, right? Flat tires, oil in the engine and gas in the engine with flat tires, it ain't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, so I think, I think the other thing is if you put the wrong fuel in, like uh, yeah. I almost caught a employee doing today. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, That's I was standing right there and I was like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing with that red can? <laughs> yeah, you can't be colorblind on a farm with both gasoline and diesel engines. Yeah. Um, no, anyway. it's, it's, it's true, but that, that's, that's the key with the local artisans. Yeah. You have to create a system that holistically supports the whole of the system. So why, why don't potters using bone ash exist today? Mm. Yeah. Because Where did the bones go? Exactly, because the bones are now being turned into fertilizer, they're being turned into pet food a lot of the times. So they're just, they disappeared off the market. They disappear off the commodity market. Yeah. Right? I mean, we, we bought a cow from the processor. I mean, we bought a cow, picked up a cow that we bought off of one of our Commonwealth farms in the processor, and it was missing hundreds and hundreds of pounds in mm. what we were expecting. We said, what's wrong? And he said, oh, we're just so busy. We didn't even give you any bones. Mm. I almost shook the guy. I, I almost, I mean, my wife, Morgan, who she now, unlike myself, had a very successful college uh, athletic <laughs> life and is very physically uh, my, my equal. Um, I mean, she, she literally had to almost hold me back. Yeah. I say literally almost in the sense that it was imminent. I mean, yeah. where, what do you mean? You're like, that's the problem. No, 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 no. Keep the ribeyes. I don't want those. I want the bones. I want the marrow. I want the bone ash. I want, I want to transform our local community. Ribeyes, I could do without a ribeye. Mm. Yeah, we'll just grill less. Are you serious? Um, oh, I'm gonna get fired up. The point is we need a holistic system supporting holistic systems. And any mm -hmm. denuded form of that will produce a denuded result. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing I think we do too, is we tend to shoehorn what we want into a system. So, you know, going back to the diesel and the gas engine, um, well, actually it's not, that's the bad one. It's the gas and the diesel engine, which is the real problem. Um, but too often we try to push, you know, I, I see these farmers online. You go back, go back to the beginning where you talked about, you know, you say you have mad respect for people that can grow market gardens. And I happen to be pretty much a market gardener. So I had to laugh. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, have my respect. You, you have no idea. You have no idea. I, I see these people in these online forums, they go ahead and say, well, I've got heavy clay and I'm going to plant a market garden. And how do I solve this? And I'm like a move. And I'm like, and, and they all laugh at me. And I'm like, no, I have seen so many farms go out of business because they've tried to put the wrong enterprise on the long property. To be truly holistic, we need to feel what the soil wants to be supporting. And when you look at some of these heavier soils, it's very clear they want perennials or they want to be with animal management because it's going to be the best grassland that's going to be able to hold moisture and drought and keep the soil covered. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just one of those things like, you know, you said about, you know, having the right pieces of, in the place. And that's so important. Um, you know, I'm looking at a picture here on your, your website of a, a massive, uh, it's probably a mother oak tree with the cows underneath it. Mm. Um, 
Um, and you know, unfortunately, we have we unfortunately we have one big maple tree on our property. Unfortunately, we probably will lose that next twenty years because of disease is starting to move in. But that is definitely something that we are planting. Is we're planting more mother trees because yes. I think having those and and you know about twenty years ago when the corn prices went to seven dollars a bushel, you saw all these hedgerows ripped out with these massive beautiful trees. And you know what? Ever since then, we've just seen the weather get crazier and crazier. And I mean, it started before that, but I'm not, I'm sure that that was not insignificant to what's happening today is when we remove what was there that was naturally growing and try to just slam one thing into this whole system that wasn't created for that is we're getting this, this um, adulteration of our landscape. Yeah, I want to, I want to respond to that in two different ways. The, the first of which from a community of humans working together in a commonwealth network for a market. Um, I, I think just as it's really hard to build a, a market garden on top of a clay sheet of, of soil, I, I think it's also, um, I don't know if this is too crazy to say, um, but I, I think a lot of small farmers, they, they, they run out of juice or their farm business runs out of energy, uh, just physically. Um, because in order to make it as a small local farm peddling local foods, you, you are told you have to raise everything. I mean, if, you're, if, if, if your customers eat yes. chicken, you, you better freaking raise chicken. And if they eat beef, you mm -hmm. better raise beef. And how dare you raise chicken and beef without pigs? Because people also eat pork too. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't want to insult anybody, but I've listened to plenty of a podcast where everybody is saying, well, listen, you got to raise all of the enterprises. If you're going to run a multi-species operation, you can't be financially profitable if you don't. That's ludicrous. Yeah. Well, it's like the market gardener trying to raise 45, 50 crops. And we were there. I mean, and, yeah. and again, we were profitable because we've been at it for over a decade. But, you know, we're at the stage now where we were like, we have our eight to 12 crops. That's us. And then we are working with a network of farmers in the area that can provide boom. the rest. Boom, boom, boom. That's exactly right. Everyone That's wins. exactly right. We, we have to form collaborative, community-based networks of systems so that Tim Shaw Wildland our operation, we raise really good beef. Mm -hmm. We raise really good lamb. And when we feel like it, when <laughs> feed for hogs isn't 30% increased mm -hmm. due to everything in the world, we raise very good pork, but I don't raise chickens. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't raise goats. And I mean, like we're allowed to focus. Focusing is a very good thing. A lot of people I think are, are wrong by the rhetoric of multi-species agriculture. Mm -hmm. We, we as humans are wrong by this understanding. It's not that multi-species shouldn't exist on your farm or more than one veggie should exist in your hoop house. That's, that's, that's not what we're saying. That's not what I'm saying. A sheep is a very good sheep. How dare it try to also be a cow and a pig? Mm. The, the, the item here that I'm saying is a human is a very good human. How dare he try to be anything else? And when we're trying to run a multitude of enterprises over even small-scale agricultural land, we run into problems. We are not good at managing multiple orchestras. We are conductors. And I think there's it's an apt analogy to make, and I'll pass it over and I'll let you chew on it. For those who might find it interesting, I'll let them chew on it. But it, a conductor can't conduct multiple orchestras. He, conduct, con he can mm -hmm. conduct one, full of a multiplicity of elements, but not always all of the elements not always all of the elements. And so working in community is important. And I said two things, and before I forget, let me get to the second. The, this, the second thing is also this idea of, of, hair, of uh, legacy. Mm -hmm. 
genetic legacy. This idea of a mother oak uh, gives chills down your spine because there's something there that doesn't really exist in the modern world, right? This idea of legacy, not permanence. No, that's, that's ridiculous. All, all life is in migration. All life migrates. I mean, think about that mother oak has spread a million acorns a year. Our, our oak in that picture, we court it with the Virginia Department of Forestry, 317 years or years old, about five years ago. So it's 320 years old right now. Think about a million acorns for the last 320 years. And where do they go? Because they're not there, but I guarantee they're born and, and, and growing somewhere. All life is in migration. Even trees move. We just have to enlarge in our idea of time in order to see it. They okay. walk. There's this really funny meme where two trees are standing next to each other. And he says, Duh, do you think humans communicate with each other? And the other tree looks at them and he goes, I don't, I don't think so. How, they, how, do, how do they? They don't have any roots. <laughs> Right, so this idea of yeah. perspective and, and lens and paradigm—it's—it's—it's it's, it's brilliant. Trees walk; yeah. they just don't walk as humans do. And so, the idea of legacy and and inheritance—this, this, this is something entirely missing from our landscape and in both species. Okay, so like a mother oak, there's something special about that, as opposed to a loblolly pine, which grows in plantations all over Central Virginia because loblolly pine grows really crappy lumber. Uh -huh. But for some uh -huh. interesting, from some interesting perspective, we're interested in really crappy lumber. Yeah, I'm interested in long-term relationships. Those are scary. And and dare I relate this sad emotional and physical reality back to the modern human species of TikTok and social media and that stupid app where people hook up on online that I don't know the name of. <laughs> we're we're infatuated with impermanence. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because it's now how many billion hours a day are watched of 15 second videos. And, you know, the, uh, the, the true art form used to be two to three hour, you know, masterpiece movies. I mean, people would, mm. you know, talk about them and, and now it's gone to this really, you know, short form and these people are, you know, becoming millionaires over, you know, if they can shake their butt better than the next person um to be you know completely crass but no it's um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's 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 entirely true um so you know and i want to go back to something you said about the multiple orchestras because not only there you know you shouldn't be doing multiple orchestras is there's different types of orchestras mm -hmm. and uh, i mean there's brass bands there's quartets and different farmers are suited for different orchestras you know i think some farmers especially if they've been there for three or four generations they have the capacity to add on other enterprises um because yes. they've solved the certain problems i mean with our current farm right here we not only do a full range of vegetables we do horticulture we ship elderberry cuttings around the, the U.S. and Canada. We um, do online education. We are gearing up to do, um, you know, ship fire cider across the U.S. as well as, you know, a few other enterprises, which I can't think of at the moment. Um, oh, a food truck. We're adding a food truck next year. Um, but uh, the only reason we're able to do that is I'm just completely crazy and work 18-hour days. Um, but I, I don't wish that lifestyle on anyone, um, someone online. Well, it's the idea of choosing it, right? Yes. Like if I can interject, yes. manage what you want to manage. You don't have to manage everything in the same way that we want yeah. to create a market solution at Commons Provisions where you don't have to go to a farmer's market. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's what you're saying. Well, have, yeah. have chicken and sheep and cattle and pigs and bison and goats and just... You don't have to. If you have a community system, yes. you don't have to kill yourself. That's the key. Do it well, if you like. Right. I run five different organizations. Like I get it. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And but I, I get to do. 
yes, I get to do that. And I get to build an incredible team around me. And I, I can't say enough about, you know, my wife and, and, and our, our, you know, financial team, which runs the office and just our, our team and the different businesses, which allow me to do this, you know, crazy lifestyle. And again, my wife is constantly pulling me back, which is completely uh, needed um, yes. because otherwise, you know, we'd have like 25 different projects all in one third like completion. But um, yeah, I, I just want people to also look at, you know, what we're doing or what you're doing and, and not be like, you need, they need to do that. You know, they need to no. start with the baby steps. And some of us do go, do go crazy as it was. And, um, and again, we're, we're just big thinkers and, and we're, and we're just going to keep, keep this thing, but I don't want people to think like they've got to do that. Cause a lot of people come to our farm and look at what we've done. And like, you did this in like two years. And I was like, well, it's really been more like 18 months of controlled chaos. And, um, I don't want people to feel like that's the general of what a farm should look like. I think there's going to be a few of us that are going to just push crazy, but I think people start off with one enterprise. And as you said, just run one orchestra to start with and just enjoy that and learn that um, because kids grow up fast, you know, since we've, um, you know, since we've been to the farm in two years, you know, I've got a five-year-old that's now a seven-year-old, a three-year-old that's now a five-year-old and we had a baby. Yeah. It's amazing how fast they grow up and just, you know, the hours, um, you know, the other day I realized, um, you know, I'd only see my kids for about five minutes that day, just because I was constantly out doing it again, what a little bit of a season right now, this is a crazy year for us with so many different levels for just some different reasons. Um, but you know, we've, we've talked like, this is going to change. This has to change. This is going to change because you know, the long, again, we can change the world, but if we also lose our kids, um, or we, we don't have the relationships we want with them, that also is, is a, is a major failure. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. I, I completely agree. I think if anybody uh, has an attention long enough to be still listening to this episode, I, I think if I had to say anything to you, it's, it's, it's simply this. It's to echo exactly what Michael just said. Um, so focus on collaboration. Yeah, right? focus, focus on collaboration. Yeah. Focus on your whole, your vision of the future, and then do it in a collaborative framework so that we all rise and fall. Mm-hmm not just, I mean, right now we're just yeah. falling. I mean, I, yeah. I can't even say anybody's rising. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our, 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 our economy together. and our system is, is just imploding as we speak. I mean, we're right. seeing a lot of things. All right. So, you know, to that fact, cause I think, you know, we just said some stuff about family and I want people to, uh, you know, what do you, how do you spend intentional time with your kids, with your wife? Yeah. Great question. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know if, if, you know, other people agree with us or you, Michael, maybe, maybe you can see this in your own life, but um, I mean, our kids are there all the, all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we farm more or less full time. Um, like just, just today, um, the kids went out with chores for us. Ours are four, three, and one. Oh, wow. Um, the kids went out for chores with us, moved way too many cows and did all this stuff. And we did some agroforestry work. And then we planted a couple uh planted this really cool arbor of hardy kiwis my mm-hmm. background when i first got into agriculture was in permaculture and so our little two acre homestead on a 400 acre wildland is is definitely permaculture fied food you know this food forest and gardens and more like chaos perennial gardens and key lines and little ponds mm-hmm. and things well anyways planted some really fun things and then they went down to take a nap i mean all day i i've spent with my kids Mm-hmm. I do get up quite early. I get up at 4 a.m. I get all the things that I need to. By the time they get up at seven o'clock, I've already read for a couple hours and I'm and I'm pretty happy. And mm-hmm. um, I write when they're taking a nap. 
Um, but it's just going back to initially in the very beginning, you asked how, how can somebody do so much work? Um, and I, and I said, dedicated time. I mean, mm-hmm. my entire day is dedicated time with our kids. Um, they're also very good. I mean, our three-year-old and our four-year-old move cows just as well as I do. It's unbelievable. By the time that they're 10, I'm pretty much going to retire. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure of it. Um, but every night, you know, we go upstairs and in our playroom in our house, you know, we have nothing to do. We don't schedule anything. You know, we have dinner at 6 p.m. after a long day and uh, we go up there and I read and our three-year-old thinks it's the cutest thing to sit next to me in a rocking chair and pretend like he writes poetry. I'm writing a book on poetry right now. Yeah. Um, and so he writes poetry and it's gorgeous and it's amazing. We have so much fun, but it's dedicated time together, but also not making your kids a part of your life, but making your life to be accessible to your kids. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, my relationship with my kids and I said, I mean, they're four, three and two. Elowen is, is, is our oldest to come son and Sequoia. I mean, I just hope they don't get bored of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's my concern. If they start getting bored of jolly old dad, um, not if I have time for them. Oh my goodness. That's, uh, that's not a future I'm interested in. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I said commons is built on this scaling regeneration by keeping it small, but I also use the term, um, we must regenerate the soul of our communities to then heal the soil. How dare we regenerate the soil and, 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 and screw up the soul of our community? I mean, hmm. what, a, what an improper future, what an improper, what a non-abundant, what a degenerative future that looks like. Yeah, you can have a grassland. But if the soul and the social aspect of your community is degenerating, what are you really doing? And I think your kids are a huge part of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And you know what I said earlier about the kids not being with us for most of the day that we do have my in-laws, their, uh, their grandparents, which take them and they live about six minutes away. Oh, that's and awesome. They, and they have five acres and they have chickens and they have cooney cooney pigs and, and kittens and a, a one acre pond that they can fish. So they go over there and live their best life with their, their grandparents, which is awesome. Um, that's because, awesome. yeah, it's, it's, it's real. And we go over there on weekends too, like Sunday afternoon, we typically go over there and hang out by the pond because it's beautiful. Um, but yeah, that is that aspect of, you know, how do I think what you just said right there is such an important thing is how can we build our life to, and our work to, you know, have our kids be involved in aspects of that. And one of the things we've been playing around with, and we actually put out on our page, we post on our, one of our personal uh, farm page. So we talked about how we're 100% certified kids safe of our farm. And again, obviously there's a couple levels there, which we could go and, you know, like equipment and stuff. I wouldn't say we're, you know, kids safe with all the equipment because we have tractors and such. Um, but I mean, even on your farm, you got cows, which can kick, but yeah. the, the aspect was in that we, when we like people say, are you certified organic? We're like, no, we're not certified organic because that's literally just a word that's been co-opted by the government and been literally uh, completely polluted. Yeah. Um, but we talk about, you know, to us, being one, you know, that kids safe delineation is about, you know, the regeneration is about leaving our planet better. It's about not using those pesticides as herbicides. And because, you know, if we're thinking about our kids' health and not just their kids' health, you know, right now, the, oh, well, you know, Roundup doesn't, you know, you can drink it and it doesn't kill you. But, you know, Monsanto's facing billions of dollars of lawsuits. So, you know, it's thinking about that long-term aspect of their health, you know, everything from, you know, we're starting to think about the microplastic problem. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, all those levels there. So yes, it's, but uh, yeah, I, I love it. I love the certified kids safe. I just, I love that idea. I mean, it, it comes back to it and 
I mean, just to highlight it for everybody again, I mean, it's, it's, it's the differentiation, it's the divergence between the Latin and the Greek understanding of cultivation. I have no interest mm-hmm. in toiling. Mm-hmm. And kids mm-hmm. can't survive in a toiling and tilling landscape. It's very dangerous. There's spinning things. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying that if you till, you don't have happy kids. What I'm saying is <laughs> it, it's yes. the, the paradigm in which that is constructed out of, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I would much rather become right? I would much rather be a part of the system, which by the way, is so welcoming for kids. They'll Mm -hmm. blow your mind. We had a cow get out the other day and our daughter who is four years young, um, walked right up to it perfectly in a bubble, totally distant from its back legs. And she said, no cow turn around. Mm. And then, so I started to turn around and she just stayed within the bubble perfectly. If you've ever moved cows, you understand Mm -hmm. how fast you enter their bubble, how fast you run out of their bubble, how fast you do all of these things inside that bubble is everything. That bubble is, is, is low stress stock handling. She nurtured that bubble unbelievably well. She drove about a quarter mile up, up the driveway that, you know, as he got out and she just kept saying like, come on, cow, come on, cow. And she like walked into its left periphery to push it a little bit right against the fence. She utilized, like it was, it mm-hmm. was unbelievable, mm-hmm. unbelievable. The proudest parent moment I, I think I will ever have watching a four-year-old successfully push a cow over a half a mile in the right direction. This is just unbelievable. That, in my opinion, um, is a future that I'm interested in co-creating. When I say co-creating, I've said it multiple times, be very clear. I want to co-create the future with our kids and, mm-hmm. and with our society and our community and the mid-Atlantic and the entire human species across the globe. But it it has to start somewhere. And so if our kids aren't welcome, you know, in the feed shed, or if our kids aren't welcome in a cattle drive because it's so unbelievably dangerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes, there's some dangers, um, but I Wait, don't know. But compared many. to compared to a compared to a industrial farming complex, the dangers are much lower. And it's not yeah. just a like you know when we were living in New York, um, we had a couple guys working for us uh, doing some construction on our house, and they were um, volunteer fire department, so they had their scanners going, and so we'd listen to the calls come in. And one day a call came in like uh, there's a guy down in a, in a pit and he's unresponsive, and so we just listened to over the next hour this event unfold, and it was incredibly saddening because over the next hour three more people fell down and well went down the pit trying to pull wow. somebody out, and all of them ended up passing. Um, wow. and yeah, I mean, just think about this. You now have the entire farm family, all the, you know, the, the men of the family just gone. Wow. And it's because, you know, we don't compost is that we've decided the best way to manage our, our, our manure, which is actually an incredible resource is to just put it in a, a pit, let it fester, and then just throw it on the soil in the spring when it's frozen out. And we're literally, um, you know, it's, it's seriously, they wait two feet of snow on the ground and they're out there spreading manure. And you know, 90% of those nutrients are down the creek. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's just that aspect of, you know, yes, you know, there are going to be inherent dangers in any farm. There's inherent danger in life. Um, I mean, just to go out in the road is, is dangerous. But, you know, I think the regenerative types of farms that we are trying to build are going to be inherently less dangerous than um, the industrial, you know, food complex. Yeah, human scale, you know, yeah. going back to uh-huh. verified regenerative and human scale farms of the Commonwealth Network. I, I'm, I'm very interested in the human scale. The human scale is welcoming, uh-huh. but it's also filled with social reciprocity. Um, which is even what we're talking about here. It's caring for the soul of your community. It's very hard to care for your, the soul of your community when it's overly mechanized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no uh, people it, involved. Well, yeah, there's, there's no people involved and it's built on a paradigm of toiling, tilling, and turning over. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, 
there's there's little welcoming to to mm. such terminology to such language and so the the subtitle of of my book wildlife flowers is the restoration of relationship through regeneration i think regeneration is relationship mm. it with your kids with the cows with the soil i don't care what you're talking about with you and your carrots it, it just it doesn't matter regeneration is relationship and when we understand this we can embark in an entirely new language Mm -hmm. uh, which is palo. It's about being and about becoming. It's, it's not about toiling. Yes, it's work, but relationships are work mm -hmm. and they're beautiful, which, which I think is, is what regenerative agriculture needs to understand and accommodate. Mm -hmm. And Beauty. I think, I think a lot of that too is co, um, uh, working together and just uh, building building that community because absolutely if we don't build that community yeah because again I think there's so many all of us have talents and if each of us are working in those zones of genius we can go so much further yeah and, and we get to have fun doing what we like doing mm -hmm. I mean yes life is hard right being a father is hard mm -hmm. farming is hard why exacerbate a very hard life um, with spending your life doing something uh, that you don't want to do. Yes, some people have to. Um, I, I, I just don't think it's necessary. I mean, cows necessarily need to eat grass for it to grow better. That is a natural law. Human beings hating their life, it doesn't have to be a natural law. We can co-create ourselves out of this problem with collaboration with community, with purpose, with perspective, with relationship. Mm, absolutely. Any final words here before we go? Thank you for the time. No, this is, this has been really fun. I've, I've probably said too much. Um, and so I'll just say, thank you. Ah, I appreciate Daniel, it. It's been a pleasure. It's always great to talk to those who are really thinking and kind of just um, I, I really like what, uh, you know, that was said in the back of your book there, just the, the aspect of, you know, poet laureate, because I think there is, you know, some general truth and just beauty to kind of the words, um, about the farming systems and the regeneration that, um, we've talked about here. No, I, I really appreciate it, Michael. Thank you for the platform. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and meeting you. Absolutely. Yeah. And next time in Virginia, I do met my parents live down there. So I do make it down there once in a uh, blue moon. Um, I was actually down there for literally 16 hours for a wedding <laughs> earlier this month. <laughs> ah, anytime you're here, anytime yes. you're here, you're welcome. We'll we make sure we stop in. Plenty of camping and glamping spaces and we'll, we'll show you the wildland. It'll be some fun. Awesome. Well, you have a great rest of your day, Daniel, and uh, best of luck with the seasons. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You as well. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.